This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. All right, let's see. Open your Bibles to Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. Yes. Oh, that's my job now. Cool. Oh, well, kids are dismissed. Yeah, well, we all have those days. Luke 24, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened uh, there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it. And gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other. Did not our hearts burn within us. While he talked to us on the road. While he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour. And returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven. And those who were with them. Gathered together saying. The Lord has risen indeed. And has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. So I did uh, an interesting thing this week. I uh, Googled the question, what is it all about? And I came up with some really interesting answers. Several songs came up, and uh, the song, It's All About That Bass. So I guess I answered the question right there. Uh, I guess that's what it's all about. But uh, the most common thing that came up over and over again was either 
How about that? How about this now? Oh, man. If you deliver a joke twice, does it have any help? No, no. no. Okay. All right. All right. It's all about that base that answers the... Okay. So, uh, you see the title of the sermon. It's all about Jesus. And, of course, uh, you know that that would be where I would be going when I'm talking about what's it really all about. It's all about Jesus Christ. And it's easy to stand up here this morning and to say that and to answer that probably is expected by most people from a pastor to say it's all about Jesus. But is it really? Is that really a biblical paradigm? Is that really how we should look at scripture and life and all of that? I think we need to do the hard work, do the exegesis and really lean in and to see is it really, really truly, is the Bible really truly all about Jesus? And then we really need to ask the questions. If it is true, then how about in our own lives? And so the title of the sermon is also the big idea today. I want to show you it really is all about Jesus. Now, we're in a sermon series we started last week. The sermon series is called The Gospel in Life. And we were in 1 Corinthians 15, where uh, Paul is dealing with a church that has all kinds of problems. And we listed those problems out last week. Problems like incest, problems like not taking sexual morality important, problems like divisions in the church. And Paul wants to give them some help. He wants to give them the answer. And the answer he gives them is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, where he said, Now, I would remind you, brothers, read these words with me of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. It's all about, last week I said, the gospel. And we talked a lot about how Paul regularly goes to the gospel. More on that even next week. But that gets a little confusing maybe to some people because last week you're talking about the gospel, how it's all about the gospel. And this week you're talking about it's Jesus and it's all about Jesus. Well, pastor, which one? And the answer to that question is, yes, both. (laughs) Because you can't have one without the other. You can't have Jesus but to, and deny the truths of the gospel. And if you want Jesus, you need the gospel. In fact, I would say this. The greatest thing about the gospel is that it brings you to Jesus. Can you see how, if we're not careful, we can make even the gospel about us? Or... If we're not careful, we can make the gospel merely theological and understand even gospel centrality and it'd be a very cold and very theological understanding. But I want to contend with you this morning that the gospel isn't merely theological. The gospel is relational. In church, the greatest reward of the gospel isn't the forgiveness of your sin and it isn't the elimination of my guilt The greatest gift of the gospel isn't even eternity in heaven. No, the greatest gift the gospel brings us is Jesus. And I'm going to help you today see that this is a biblical paradigm, but it should be the way that you live your life in close relationship with Jesus. Jesus should be central to everything. So we're going to do that by talking about a couple of things. First of all, let's talk about this. Without Jesus, nothing makes sense. Without Jesus, nothing makes sense. So here we are in Luke 24. Isn't that a cool story that was read to us? Jaden did a great job of reading. He did that last minute. We had someone cancel for scripture reading. I said, dude, you read it for us. And he's so shy and doesn't like to be up in front of people very much, but he was still willing to come in to read that scripture and did a great job. But isn't that an awesome story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus? And, and there's a lot that we don't 
exactly know about uh, the story. We don't exactly know where Emmaus is. In fact, this is the only place anywhere in all of history that Emmaus is even mentioned. Now, there's some speculation as to what Emmaus may be. There are some villages about seven miles north of Jerusalem. There's some guesses as to where that may be, so that's there. Uh, We don't know exactly who these disciples are. Names one of them, Cleopas, but we don't know who the other one was. And so there's some things we don't know, but there are some things that we certainly can know. We can know that they, they were confused. They were very confused. They had this dream and this hope about who Jesus would be. Let your eyeballs fall in verse 21, where it said very clearly, but we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Well, kids, he is, but not the way in which you thought he was going to be. Their hope was that he would redeem Israel from the oppression of Rome. But instead, he went to a cross and he died. And they're like, what was going on with that? They, they, they won. Jesus didn't win. They won. And they were confused about who he really, really was. They were confused about his true identity. They were confused about his resurrection. There's some interesting words that were chosen. You notice the word vision. The women said they saw a vision of angels. But was it a vision of angels? Or was, did they really see angels? What do these guys really believe? And they're like, well, we went to the tomb and we didn't see him. So how do we know? Only some women saw them. And at that point in time, women were not even allowed to give testimony in court. And I'm wondering if there's a little bit of a disparaging angle taken there. Regardless, they were very confused about who Christ was, very confused about his resurrection. And as a result, they were very discouraged. Let your eyeballs fall again in verse 17. But when he said to them, what is this conversation? But isn't that just funny? They're talking, here's Jesus. <laughs> and they're talking about all these things that happened to Jesus and all this. And he's like, well, what is this conversation you're holding uh, with each other as you walk? And But look at their, look at their response. And they stood still looking, what does your Bible say? Yeah, they were, they were discouraged. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says the two men walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus were discouraged disciples who had no reason to be discouraged. They had heard the reports of the women uh, that the tomb was empty and that Jesus was alive, but they did not believe them. They had hoped that Jesus would redeem Israel, but their hope had been shattered. And nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense to them. Jesus was not who they thought he was going to be. He didn't do what they thought he was going to do. And since the real Jesus was different from their make-believe dream Jesus, they were sad and they were discouraged. Can you think of some application to real life in that scenario? When the real Jesus ends up being very different than your imagined Jesus or people's imagined Jesus... Let's first of all kind of focus a little bit on the unbeliever today. And I want you to follow me uh, on this. Uh, Why do you think anybody in their right mind would ever climb Mount Everest? Do you know what it takes to climb Mount Everest? It's like at least 50 days, if not 60 days to climb it. The, if you go at the best time of the year, the temperatures range from 14 degrees above zero to 14 degrees below zero, not even taking into factor the wind chill. When you're, when you're climbing those 50 to 60 days, like most people take a year to work out to get ready for it. It's an arduous climb where one step could kill you. 
And it's not like there's hotel rooms along the way as you climb up this thing. And you're sleeping in a tent in sub-zero weather where one step could kill you. Why would anyone do that? And you get to the top and the view is okay. I grew up in Washington State where these these things we call mountains. I know you guys don't know, but I'm here in the Midwest. But in Washington, we have mountains. And I could go and I could drive in my warm car to the top of a mountain and have a better view than what Everest gives you. So it's not that. Why would anybody in their right mind climb Mount Everest? Because the heart, the human heart, longs for something more. And very often people get to a point in their life where they're like, is this it? doesn't make any sense. I thought life was going to be more than this. That's why men have midlife crises. What's going on here? We just heard from, from Maud, and, and I, 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 I don't know how often I tell his story, not very often, but it is an awesome story. Maden was a part of the number one pop band in Croatia. This is Meja. If you go on to one of their songs, Zorika, and you, uh, it's the name of the song, uh, they have over 17 million hits on that song alone. And there are five or six different videos. They had achieved the highest f- fame in Croatia. And they were, they were, they were it. And Modern tells a story of one day he was playing in a sold-out concert in a sold-out venue. They'd been doing this for a couple of years. He had made all the money, he had all the albums, he had all the fame, and he's playing his bass guitar in this group. And he's like, is this it? This is it? This is achieving the most that I can achieve in this area? This is what it is? And his heart was longing. It just didn't make sense. And his heart was longing for more. Now, praise God, <laughs> he found Jesus. And boy, that became a whole other trajectory for his life. As you can see, now he's got this church that he's overseeing, becoming the pastor of this church, preaching the gospel in Croatia. But without Jesus, before Jesus, nothing made sense. So look, here's why I say this to you. Because you can look around at your unbelieving friends, you can look around the city of Fort Wayne, and it seems like people are doing okay. It seems like they're fairly happy, man. They got their nice cars, they got their nice houses, got their nice jobs. It all looks good on the outside, but I'm telling you, without Jesus, life isn't making sense for them. God created us with this eternity in our hearts, this longing for something more, and that something more is the person of Jesus Christ. And they're longing for something, and as good as it looks on the outside, it's not making sense to them on on the inside. And they need Jesus Christ. I mean, just take truth out of life and try to make sense of it. You know that most people in their philosophy believe that men are basically good? What does the Bible say about that? It's called the total depravity of man. <laughs> and that, that we are, in and of ourselves, there's, there's no good in us. The Bible says there's none good, no, not one. And if you think that man is basically good, try to make sense of the world around you. All the evil that's going on, and where did that come from, and Life doesn't make sense without a good theological foundation, a good, the, a good crystallogical foundation. It doesn't make sense. And I'm telling you, that's so true even for the unbeliever. But it's also true for the believer. And I think that's more the application of the text. Because when you look at the text specifically, these guys were disciples. They had been following Jesus. And... Um, 
or the Jesus that they were following was not necessarily the Jesus of reality. So believer, I don't know, but certainly they were followers of Christ, trying to follow Christ. And there was this huge problem because he was going to conquer Rome. In their mind, they were following the one who was going to conquer Rome, and he didn't do it. And John MacArthur says this, they had been looking for an immediate earthly kingdom. With Christ crucified, they were probably struggling with doubt about whether he was the Messiah who would reign. And Warren Wiersbe again nails it when he says this. We get the impression that these men were discouraged and disappointed because God did not do what they wanted him to do. You ever experience that in your life? Come on now. You can be honest. This is a safe place for you to be real with God. In fact, we urge you to be real with God, not pretend like you Always think everything is okay. And we do this in Christianity. We do. Hey, I'm sorry your house burnt down, but God is good, right? God is good, isn't he? Yep, God's good. Well, I'm sorry your dog died, but, you know, you know, God's good. I'm sorry this, but, you know, and we always want to just get right to but the reality is there is there is some times where our hearts don't understand what God is. Am I alone in this? There are some times when we just don't understand what God is doing. God, why did you allow this to happen? Why did you do this? Is that okay to admit that? You ever feel that way? David did, by the way, and it's recorded in the Bible, and they sang it as a worship song. Because <laughs> there are times when we don't understand what God is doing. And he does things differently than we would. I, if I could write this story, if I could write this story, Someone would cut us about a $10 million check right now, and we would build an awesome building. Can I get a witness? We would. That'd be so cool. Um, That's not happening. It's not going the way that I would have written it. This church plant has not gone the way that I would have written it. (laughs) I wouldn't write a church split year three of our church plant that we had years ago. I wouldn't have written it that way. But God wrote it that way. And I'm sure that if you're honest with me, that there are times in your life when you're just like, I didn't think it would go this way. So, so listen now, church, what do you do with those kind of moments? Well, you've got to get a good, solid truth underneath you, scriptural truth. Jesus takes them to scripture, more of that in a minute, but to get a good biblical foundation under you which reminds you that your god is in sovereign control and your god loves you and you know that he loves you because of jesus he gave his son for you and if he did not withhold his own son romans chapter 8 if he did not spare his own son how will he not with them also graciously give us all things you get that gospel that christology that foundation underneath you and that's how you function Without Jesus, nothing makes sense. It's just that truth. Where, where in your life are you struggling? Where in your life do things just not seem to make any sense? Does your heart and your mind go back to 
Jesus. And, and if it doesn't, why not? Where are the doubts that that reveals to you in your own heart about how Christ is actually functioning in your life? What you really believe about Jesus? Is the real Jesus you're experiencing in life different from the one that you thought he was? And then what do you do with all of that? Well, what you should do is you should go back to the scriptures. Because when you do, then you arrive at this conclusion. Without Jesus, nothing makes sense. But with Jesus, it all makes sense. With Jesus, it all makes sense. And I want you to see this clearly in the text. So let's go back to uh, that verse 25. And I want you to see exactly what Jesus does here in verse 25. Now, what happens here, church, listen to me now. When it comes to hermeneutic, which is uh, the way in which we interpret scripture, when it comes to biblical interpretation and how we especially see the Old Testament or the Bible as a whole, this text is very, very key. So what's happening here is very significant and should should really inform the way in which we interpret scripture. So here's what he does in verse 24. Take a look at this. Some of those who were with us in the tomb found that, uh, as the women said, but he, uh, but, but him they did not see. So we had not seen Jesus in verse 25. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now watch verse 27. And beginning with who church? Moses. And how many of the prophets? All the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I'm going to read that verse again. It's really important. In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What Jesus does here is absolutely significant. And I want you to see this. The Bible doesn't make sense without Jesus in the center. The Bible doesn't make sense without Jesus in the center. Or put it in a positive way, the Bible only makes sense with Jesus at the center. The Bible only makes sense with Jesus at the center. And what he does is go to to Moses, it says. Now, when it says Moses, do you know that what he's talking about is he is going actually back to the first five books of the Old Testament because uh, it is known that Moses wrote the first five books. It's called the Pentateuch. So chances are what Jesus does is takes them back to Genesis. And though we're not told, I'm wondering if he ended up in Genesis 3.15. This is after the curse. This is uh, uh, God talking to the serpent where he says this, and I will put inventory between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush or bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's a strange thing to say. Like there's going to be offspring and, and they're revealing all this to, to Eve and to the serpent. But there's a promise here. There is a promise that there would be a seed of the woman that would crush the head of Satan. Church, who was that? Come on, say it aloud. Who was that? Jesus. Jesus. It's Jesus. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, we see Christ. See him all over the Bible. And there's some places where it's really, really obvious. How about Micah 5.2? But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. You don't have to pronounce these big words. You're not a preacher, but trust me. It gets a little intimidating time to time. Who were um, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me one who is to be the ruler in Israel. Who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. 
Church, who was that? Jesus. So obviously to us, we know where Jesus was born. We know that one day he will rule Israel. We know all of that. So yeah, we, believe, we know. We know it's Jesus. There's also Isaiah 53. Take a look at this. We kind of talked about this a few weeks ago when Drew unpacked for us the, um, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip and what happened there where he says this in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Oh, come on. You can picture this. You can picture the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace and with, with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Church, who is that? It's Jesus Christ. We see it so clearly. We know that. And there's some places where it's really obvious. Let me show you a few more. Here's Psalm 22, and I love Psalm 22. There's some really cool things. This is how Psalm 22 starts out. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me from the words of my groaning? Jesus said those very words from the cross. And you go further in Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8 say this, all who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And that's so obvious what the people were saying at the cross. And Jesus didn't make them say that. They said that at the cross. It was just recorded. So obviously Jesus. But how about this? Clearly a Psalm 22. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I mean, come on. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Then there are some places where it's not quite so obvious. But it's still Jesus. For example, here's Psalm 2, 7. Uh, I will let, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Do you know that that is the Lord God talking to Jesus? Now you read Psalm 2 and you're like, how do you know that's Jesus? Well, how I know it's Jesus is because the book of Hebrews told me it's Jesus. Would you take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 1? Check this out. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. This is such a very, very important point to make that you understand it again because it impacts so much our hermeneutic, the way in which we interpret Scripture. We really need to be sure that we're on the right track here. And I want you to take a look at Psalm 1. And we're going to, I'm sorry, sorry, Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1. And we're going to go all the way down to, well, let's just start from the beginning. I'm going to read almost the entire chapter. And I love Scripture. Follow along as I read. Here's Hebrews 1, verse number 1. Are you there? If you're there, say amen. Amen. If you're not there, say, wait. Good. All right. So long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus does. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ah, that's 
Psalm 2-7. That's why we know that was actually talking about Jesus. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of righteousness. Uh, sorry, of brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, O Lord, you laid this, or you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth from the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And he goes on and on all throughout chapter 1. He's just going back to Scripture and Scripture and Scripture and Scripture. In fact, the uh, author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 2. He quotes Psalm 89. He quotes Deuteronomy 32. He quotes Psalm 104, Psalm 45, Isaiah 61, uh, Psalm 13, Psalm 110, Psalm 10. Do you see what he's doing? He's just going back and he's saying, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, that's Jesus. Okay, do you get the point? Grab your Bible. Come on, grab your Bible. Get it firmly in your hand. I want you to hold it up for me this morning. And if it's on your phone, awesome. Hold your stupid phone up. So here we go. Uh, uh, it's all about Jesus. Come on, say it. It's all about Jesus. This is, Jesus is the message of the entire Bible. It is all about Jesus Christ. Tim Keller says this, the Bible is a story, a unified narrative plot line resolving and climaxing in Jesus. The disciples knew the stories of each prophet, each priest, each king. I mean, they were students of the word, okay? Each deliverer from Gideon to David. They knew about the temple and the sacrifices, but while they knew all the sub-stories, they couldn't, until he showed them, see the story, and the ultimate prophet, priest, king, deliverer, and final temple and sacrifice. They couldn't see what the Bible was all about until they saw Jesus in every story. And it is all, all about Jesus Christ. Do you see how important that is? Let me give you an example. What's David and Goliath about? It's about me facing my problems. And if I just believe enough, I can conquer all my problems, even the really big ones. It's not about you. Say, it's not about me. Tell your neighbor, it's not about you. It's not about you. There's a greater and better David who has conquered the giant of sin and death and it's jesus christ it's all about jesus christ and this is this quote is from tim keller's book preaching actually and uh it's one i'm i'm reading right now and keller just talks about if you are in scripture every sermon needs to make a road to jesus every sermon needs to make a road to jesus why would we say that because we just looked at it in luke chapter 24 Every, all the prophets, all the scriptures, it's all about Jesus. Make sense? Okay, here's a question. Here's a thought. Not only does the Bible only make sense with Jesus at the center, can I just tell you this? Your life only makes sense with Jesus at the center. I love how personal this text is. Jesus didn't have to do this. He didn't have to go out of his way to go on a walk with some guys from Jerusalem to Emmaus. He didn't have to do that, but he did. 
because he's after something. And look how he addresses them in verse number 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and what are the next three words that you have in your Bible? Slow of heart to believe. Slow of heart to believe. All of the prophets have spoken. It's not that they didn't see it. They didn't believe it. And they didn't believe it because they wanted something more than Jesus. They wanted redemption from Rome. They wanted freedom. And so their heart desire painted the way in which they saw the scripture and their hearts refused to believe it was clearly in front of them. It was a heart issue. Say that to your neighbor. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Because later on, they say this in verse number 32. Look at this in the text, verse number 32. They said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Man, Jesus, I would love to have been a fly on that wall, wouldn't you, on this road or on, on, on uh, uh, whatever they had, a camel or something, but just to be able to hear what Jesus did and how he showed them himself all along the way. And, and then, but, but they were like, oh, this is it. Man, that's Jesus. Oh, this is it. This is it. This is the thing our hearts are longing for. Their hearts burned within them because Jesus was the center, needed to be the center of their hearts. There was a longing in their hearts, and that longing was Jesus. And I'm telling you this morning, there is a longing in your heart. And everybody is trying to fill that longing up with something. And maybe what you're trying to fill your longing up is more success at work. Some relationship that you're walking in and dealing with. Maybe you're trying to fill your heart up with kids that are getting it, that you couldn't get it, but your kids are going to get it. I don't know. The pleasure of binge watching something on TV. Food. I can go on and on. My challenge to you is let Jesus be the center. Let Jesus be the center of your life. So what, does that, what does that look like exactly? Well, there's, there, there's, a, there's a book that was out. I, I was hesitant to mention it, but I think I'm going to because I think there's some, it just helps you think about this a little different. The book is called My Heart, Christ's Home. Are you familiar with this book? It's a little story about Jesus walking into someone's home, but that being really their heart and their, their, their inner being. And there's some really, they're, they're, it lacks gospel. You know, it needs a little more grace and a little more gospel, but it does help us think about these things in, in a very interesting, creative way. Like Jesus Jesus walking into the, the room of the library of your heart, the library of your heart. And this is kind of like the room of the mind. And if you can imagine the books on the shelves or the, the subjects of the things that you tend to, to think about and ponder about and the pictures on the wall are the images your mind tends to go to. And if you were to bring Jesus into the room of the library of your heart, what, what is the subject matter that takes up most of your thinking and concentration? If you were to look up what's the big subjects in my library, what are they? Now listen, there's definitely sci-fi in my library, okay? There's definitely some sci-fi. You got that? Amen to that? No question. But, but it better not be the main thing I'm thinking about all the time. 
I can enjoy Star Wars. Can I get a witness? And yet, it not take up my the majority of my library. We can bring Jesus into our our living room, the room of our intimate relationships. And man, we should be sitting there with Jesus a lot. We should be sitting there with Jesus a ton. How much time do we spend there with Jesus? It talks about going into the workroom and are the things that you put your hands to, is, this, is there for Jesus on that? Then there's the hall closet. And that's the one place that we just don't want Jesus to go. We want to keep Jesus out of that one. It's messy. As you think about your life, how you function day in, day out as you live, man, is Jesus the center? Does Jesus have access to it all? Is Jesus Christ really the center of your life? And I'm just praying that this is, this is the only way it all makes sense. So tomorrow as you're getting up, as you're getting ready, as you're doing your thing, man, you should be thinking about Jesus. And your heart should be going to Christ on a regular basis. And if, the, and if that is like, if that is hard for you, maybe you need the right view, the biblical view of Jesus. Number three, we're going to be talking about some things that will help us. Number one, without Jesus, nothing makes sense. Number two, with Jesus, it all makes sense. And lastly, this. So let's, let's tell the world. Look at what they do. I love this. Look at verse 33 of the text. And they rose that same hour after Christ had opened their eyes to seeing it. And they rose that same hour. They returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 who were there with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed. He's appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them by the breaking of bread. So a couple of phrases there I want you to pay attention to. Do you see on verse 33 it says, and they rose that same hour. Luke uses that to picture, to encourage some urgency. There's urgency here. They couldn't wait to get out. They couldn't wait to go find someone. There was urgency. And then also notice the fact in simply in verse number 35, then they told. They were urgent to tell. They were urgent to tell. When they had found the thing their hearts were longing for, they couldn't wait to share it with those whom they loved. There was something of value here, something of worth that they found and they couldn't wait to spread that wealth. I was listening to this week that the fact that the lottery is up to 250 million dollars. Now listen, I do not play the lottery. I don't play it. I'm not condoning you or telling you to play the lottery. But I'm telling you where my brain went, like what could I do with $256 million? What would I do with that money? For sure, a real life functioning lightsaber. No question that's happening. But other than that, like I'm telling you, my dad right now, he lives in the shack that he grew up in, in the middle of Podunk, Kentucky. I don't care if he lives there. I'm just going to build him a mansion in that place instead of a shack. I want to get my own, I'm going to share some of that wealth with my dad. My kids are going to have all their college paid off and paid for if they want to do that or help them out with their career because I love my kids and I want to share it with them. Man, we're building a massive church here. Can I get a witness? Actually, we're not. We're building a moderate-sized church to plant more churches. That's what we're going to do. But I'm just telling you right now, there's something of value in that when you have something of value, you want to share it with those you love, and we have something with value. Matthew chapter 13 says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Why? Because it was treasure. And again, 
the kingdom of heaven, just read Jesus there, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding the one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And I'm telling you, Jesus is the treasure and Jesus is the pearl. You have something of great value. Do you really believe it? This week, did you live your life like you have the greatest treasure in the world now that you have Jesus? And you just want to tell everyone. Anyone you love needs to hear. Now, in the, in the very short weeks to come, in September, we're going to help you. We've been working on a tool to help kind of give more intention to sharing the gospel as a lifestyle. So we're, we're working on this tool. We're going to be launching that tool in September to help you more. But you can still talk about Jesus to people without that tool and do it as much as you can. But one of the things that we really want to encourage is this. Dive deep into who Jesus really is. And to help you with that, you'll notice in the back we have a uh, table. And on that table are multiple copies of the book Gentle and Lowly. I've talked about it a lot. The book has massively impacted me. It was very, very encouraging to me. And it just really, by Dane Orland, it's a beautiful book that really talks about the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's all from uh, that verse in uh, Matthew 11, 28-29, where he says, For I am gentle and lowly of heart. That's the only place Jesus ever talks about his heart and says he is gentle and lowly. This is who Jesus is. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to give away those copies. Those are free to you. Grab that. We'll already have one. Pick up another one. Get it to a friend and read it and lean in and get to know from the scriptures. This is this is based on this from the scriptures who Jesus really is. And let that draw your heart closer to him to see the treasure that he is and to run after him. All right. It's all about Jesus. Come on, say it with me. It's all about Jesus. I want you to live that way this week. So, Father, help us with that. Bring yourself glory in that. And uh, it is my prayer for our people. It is my prayer for our church. That we would live our life in this love relationship with Jesus Christ. Help us to do that better in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, church. You are loved.